0: Good morning, everybody. Can you hear me? Thank you. Uh, As Drew said, my name is David. Uh, I need to say up front, like, I need all the nods and amens and yeses and smiles. If not, we're just going to, like, be here until 12 o'clock, all right? So make sure that we're all participating in this together. Uh, We are in our series on Galatians, and we're almost done. Uh, This is our penultimate, uh, second-to-last uh, sermon on Galatians. We're going to be focusing on Galatians 5, 24 through 6:10. So if you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and get that out. If you need a Bible, we have people coming up on the sides and they can give you one. We normally read the scripture in the beginning, but uh, just for the sake of time, because I talk a lot, we're going to keep it moving today. And so if I had to, to shape out the letter so far, if I had to kind of recap what we've learned, I say that Galatians, uh, the, the letter to Galatians starts off with Paul really addressing an issue of division in the church at Galatia between these Judaizers who were these Jewish Christians who thought and taught that non-Jewish Christians had to become like them in order to belong to God's family. And Paul's like, that's not how it works. And so he gets into this deep theology about how Jesus transformed reality and made us, you and I, the, U, the new united family that he had birth before the foundation of the world, right? That was in Abraham's heart. That was in uh, his heart when he created Adam and Eve in the very beginning. He said, we're only united in him alone, and now nothing else can save, heal, or unite us. Therefore, any authority that we try to live under, apart from God's authority and goodness, will fail us. And that includes our own authority and autonomy. That includes our own view of saying, I am God, I am the highest law and order in this land as well. And now Paul is careful to clarify that the rejection of the kind of living by the Mosaic law, the Old Testament law, does not mean that we get a license to sin. On the contrary, he moves into some beautiful poetry about the new life in the spirit and the fruit that is produced whenever we live our lives in step with the Holy Spirit instead of our own desires. Paul calls these desires the flesh. Now, in order to taste the fruit of the spirit, we have to crucify our flesh, right? These passions and desires that we used to live by uh, before we started following Jesus and died with him in baptism and became a new creation. I don't know if you were here last week, but Evan used the language of pulling up weeds out of a garden. Right, that's a really good image to think about crucifying our flesh. These old desires that no longer define us, these old identities that no longer tell us who we are. We need to put those things on the cross with Jesus as we step into our new life with Him. And so now Paul is gonna teach us exactly how to do that. Right? How do we garden? How do we grow together in community into God's new family? This is the nitty-gritty message about how we actually live some of this stuff out, right? What does the spirit-led, love-saturated, multi-ethnic community of God actually look like? In other words, and this is the first slide, in light of the fact that we are one new family called to be crucified, who live according to the spirit, how do we love one another as ourselves? How do you and I in this room love one another as if we were loving ourselves, which is the way that Jesus loved us? How do we love the people in our community group the way that Jesus loved us, which is a self-giving love that puts the other before ourselves? Now, this is important because the message today is not simply about how do I become a better person or a better Christian. I mean, that's included in that. I want to follow Christ faithfully, but this message today is really how do we become the people, Right? the beloved community, the new family that Jesus died to create. And it takes work and it raises questions. All right, the cross not only takes away our sin and gives us Jesus' righteousness, but what happens on the cross is like the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who love one another forever, all eternity, perfectly, selflessly, reshaping humanity into that image. They're recreating us into the people that can model that for the world. We get to be the community that mirrors that love by the way we love one another. We get to pull God's reality into this one by the way that we bear one another's burdens. We get to show a watching world the very nature of God, right? What did Jesus say? He said, the world will know you're my disciples by what? the way you love one another. The world will know you're my disciples by the way you love one another. And that's what Paul's getting into today. He's casting vision for a spirit-led life and community that leads to God's reality and somehow at the center of all of that is the cross. And so the first thing we need to know this morning is that the spirit-led life is a cross-shaped life. The spirit-led life is a cross-shaped life, right? The very shape of our lives should reflect Jesus' story narrative and his journey to the cross of laying his life down for others. Let's unpack this. Uh, Galatians 5, 24 through 25. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Now remember, right before this, Paul is talking about the fruit of the Spirit, the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all the good stuff. And he says, it's actually at war with our old desires. Uh, When we try to follow and pursue God's spirit, but we're still living by these old desires. Uh, There's a tension inside of us. And so we need to actively, aggressively put our old desires to death. We need to pull up the weeds as we follow or keep in step with the spirit. And this idea of keeping in step is really important. It's like uh, soldiers following the orders given out by their general. And I think that's a good image because uh, you and I, if we belong to Christ Jesus, we're no longer zombies just living according to our flesh and the elemental principles of the world and these things that used to guide us uh, when we were just kind of like doing whatever we wanted to do. Amen. Uh, Now we follow the spirit daily as we walk and abide with Jesus. Yeah, I think sometimes we forget that it was the spirit that led Jesus to the cross. Right? It was the Holy Spirit that led Jesus to the cross and gave him the power to endure it. Uh, one scholar describes it like this. He says, Christians are supposed to have one eye on the cross and one eye on the resurrection. And I don't know how that works biologically. It like, gives me a funny <laughs> picture. Of my. But I think it's true, right? The Christian life is a movement towards resurrection as we await Christ's second coming. But the path toward experiencing new life always requires laying our old lives down you don't get to uh, skip this step in growing in maturity in Jesus. In other words, the path to resurrection always goes through the cross. The path to resurrection always goes through the cross. Excuse me. It always requires laying down your life for the other. It always requires submitting your will to the Father's will, doesn't it? It always requires open arms that are willing to die so that love and the Father's love might be made known to those who have not experienced it. But how do we know that? Put simply, that's the life that Jesus modeled, right? Entry-level Christianity is laying one's life down for others so that they might experience the Father's love because that's what Jesus showed us. That's the story of the Gospels. That's the story of his life. And it's the story that Paul is desperate to see lived out in the church in Galatia. In fact, a good summary of Paul's core question to Christians is this. What story is your life telling? What story is your life Like, really think about that for a second. Because all of our lives are telling a story. But what kind of story? Is it one of these old stories that were obliterated on the cross and crucified with our flesh at the atoning work of Jesus? Or is it the new story of God's new family that Jesus inaugurated on the cross. The church in Galatia was trying to answer this question too, right? The Judaizers, they were still living by the old story that you had to become like them in order to belong to God's family. Now, Paul spent like the whole letter dismantling that belief and and exploring the new freedom we have in Christ and the glorious vision of multi-ethnic fellowship of believers that was in God's heart, right? The father is always calling sons and daughters from all nations, and the spirit of God actually blesses our cultural expressions of worshiping Christ as we unite and reunite around the person and presence and teaching of Jesus. But there were others in that community who were tempted to live a different story, right? They wanted to use the new freedom we have in Christ so they could do whatever they want with their bodies. All right, they say, maybe Jesus died for me, but it's like my body, my choice, YOLO, I do what I want, right? Whatever it is, this attitude uh, of saying I can live according to how I am the highest authority actually makes a mockery of the cross. It belittles the blood of Christ and continues the pattern of severing ourselves from ourselves and others. See, when we live under our own authority, we become God to ourselves, but the Holy Spirit says there can only be one on the throne of your heart. There can only be one who reigns and gets to tell you what's what in reality. And that's what we need to step into. We need to avoid these temptations today. We need to reject these stories the way that Paul did, and we need to lean into God's story. And so Paul is asking, is the story that defines your life the narrative of the crucified and resurrected Messiah. It's the story that defines your life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. That those who are far away could be drawn near, that the orphan could be set in family. And so Jesus said, not my will, but yours. And now are you and I willing to live that story? Are we willing to make that story our own so that others might know this love and be welcome home as a son and a daughter? Is this the story that we embody? And I'm not just talking about those out there. I have a very evangelistic bend sometimes, and I want to see the lost come to Jesus, because if we're not doing that, I don't know what else we're doing. But uh, we in this room need to live this out for one another right? We in this room need to become the family that extends and reaffirms God's love to one another in word and deed. And so when our own sins or the devil or even the culture tries to separate us from our identity as a beloved child of God, this family has to become the place that restores and reaffirms and uh, reminds us of who we are. Even sometimes it has to correct us when we're sinning or falling astray. This is the family that's supposed to bring us home to the Father, Does that make sense? And so it raises this other question. Do we love one another so well, so freely, that this story of God's new family must be true? Right? When the world looks at us in the relationships that we have with the people in our community group, with the people at Park Hill, with the people we're reading the Bible with and worshiping with and whatever, eating meals with, when they look at these relationships, do they say, wow, there's a love amongst these people that I haven't seen before? There's a care, there's there's an affinity, there's an affirmation, there's a deep sense of belonging that I am longing for, that I need in my life. Is that true of our relationships with one another? I'm going to ask so many questions this morning. It's so good, but you have to think about them, okay? Uh, Well, Paul believes, just like Jesus, that our actions towards one another, the practical, concrete ways that we love one another, Those are the things that are going to answer it. Those are the things that are going to prove how much and how well we love one another. And so that brings me to our second point. The spirit-led community is a cross-shaped community. The spirit-led community is a cross-shaped community, right? The family that follows Jesus reflects the shape of the cross, not just you and I who are carrying our own cross. Uh, There's something about when we come together that we sort of bear this even bigger cross that becomes a signpost and a testimony to the watching world, right? Remember our driving question. In light of the fact that we are one new family called to be crucified who live according to the spirit, how do we love one another as ourselves? Because that's the way Jesus loved us. And so our church, our body, our fellowship gets to answer that question with our lives, the way that we serve and love one another. How do we do this? The short answer, not alone. None of us can live this thing out on our own, right? First of all, there's no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity where it's just me and my Bible and my worship time and my Devo and I'm good with God, right? That's uh, very antithetical to the gospel that Jesus preached. Uh, Fellowship in church is essential, right? He's called us to be a unity, uh, to be to a unity and to be a family that represents the triune being. But beyond that, even within our church context in which we're giving of ourselves and loving one another freely, We can't be the only one bearing each other's burdens in a relationship, or else we're gonna crumble, right? I can't carry everybody's uh, bags. If you try to give me everybody's book bag and purse in this room, I'm very strong. Not as strong as the gentleman in the front row, but I'm very, very strong, okay? Uh, Big shoulders. I would crumble, I'd fall under the weight of that burden. Uh, In any relational dynamic that you have, uh, if you're the only one giving of yourself, eventually there's gonna be nothing left to give, right? There's nothing left of you to give. Only Christ is the foundation that can hold it all up and hold it all together. And even he, on his way to the cross and his very human body needed help up the hill. So what makes you think that you can do this on your own, right? What makes me think that I can do it on my own? So then it comes out, we need help, but we're also called to be a helper, and if I'm a withholding person, if I'm not giving of myself freely with arms wide open the way that Christ gave of himself, if I'm not pulling up the weeds in my own life to make sure that my stuff and sin and junk isn't messing up or other people are causing them to stumble and fall and trip, if I'm not helping other people bear their burdens and carry their crosses, then the family will suffer, right? The truth of the gospel is that you were needed that you matter, that each person in here, each joint supplies the need of the next. Like I can't be who I'm called to be in God unless you're being who you're called to be in God and we're doing it together. That's, that's the mystery, right? That's what, it called, that's what it means to be one body, one family united together in him. And so we're about to read through a series of commands that are aimed not simply at individuals, but at the community, The family, right? Composed of folks from very different backgrounds, met to carry the weight of love together. But before we jump into kind of Paul's list, I do just I want to make this note. Uh, This list assumes that love for one another is the highest value in the community right? When Paul's preaching to the church, he's, he's assuming that everybody here is laying their life down for one another because they want to see the father, uh, the father's love experienced by the other person and that it's mutual, that it's reciprocal, that we're all, I'm doing it for you and you're doing it for me, okay? Uh, and so, we give freely and radically, but we have to trust that God has placed us in the beloved community in which everybody's committed, because this doesn't work if I'm the only one pouring out and giving. And some of us give more than others, so I just want to acknowledge that up front. Like, some of you guys might hear this message today and just be like, I feel like there's nothing left to give. I'm serving everybody all the time, but maybe this message is going to uh, energize some other people to stop receiving as much and to also pour out on those who give. Does that make sense? So just know it's, it's a mutual, it's a two-way street. All right. So like I said, I'm going to ask a series of questions as we go through this list, because Paul kind of gives all these practical examples. And as I ask the questions, if there's one that sticks out to you, if there's one that touches your heart, I want you to pay attention. And I want you to ask the Holy Spirit, how are you trying to deal with this in my life? Okay. Also, uh, everything we're about to read, remember the background. It all comes from this phrase, since then we live by the Spirit. Since then, we live by the Spirit, do X, Y, and Z. All right, let's look at verse 526. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. Okay, since we live by the Spirit, we are no longer motivated by a scarcity mindset. See, I don't need to turn you into an object that I need to defeat or idolize in order to find worth because my worth is settled uh, because I know who I am in my father's love, amen? My, My worth and value is determined by my father in heaven. Now, Paul's speaking into a Greco-Roman culture that was highly competitive, just like our own, where like, you know, we have to keep up with the Joneses sometimes and we feel envious of somebody if they have more stuff than us. But for them, like if you were not in right relationship with your superiors and inferiors and all the people, like uh, you could lose your social status and then be demoted basically in the public's opinion. But Paul is saying, look, we who belong to Jesus, we don't have a need to compete for favor or honor or love from others or from God. There's more than enough to go around in this family. That's hard to believe sometimes, especially if you come from a broken family or if you've been forced to compete for love and recognition in romantic relationships and friendships or at work. But as a family, this is the call to grow out of the old reality and into God's new reality, his kingdom reality. So my wife and I, we uh, we have two kids. We have Henry, who's two and a half. And we have Maeve, who is almost one, and they are adorable. Um, And I love them so much. But right now, Henry is really struggling uh, with competing for attention, right? He's the big brother. He's the oldest. He's used to just us doting. It's disgusting how much we love this kid. Honestly, like, we just, we sing him. We both sing songs to him every night before he goes to bed. Like, it's just so ridiculous. But uh, it's, it's hilarious. But right now, he's really struggling competing for attention, with baby Maeve, right? If, if we're reading a book to Maeve, he has to come over and sit on our lap and be the one turning the pages. If she's playing with the toy, he has to come take it and be the one that's, oh, look, Dad, look, Mom, I got it. Uh, he started regressing, a sleep regression. So he slept through the night for like the last year, but now him and Maeve share a room and uh, Maeve cries. And then mom goes in there and gets her up and comforts her. And Henry realized, oh, if I, if Maeve cries, mom comes in. So now I can cry and make mom come in. He, there's nothing wrong with him. You know what I mean? And I love him and I want to go comfort him. But the point is... Uh, Part of our job as parents, right, as he's going through this phase, is to convince him that there's more than enough love for everyone in this family, right? There's more, we love him, and just because there's someone else here now, that doesn't mean we love you any less, And now we get to teach him how to model the same love and same truth for Maeve so that she can be a really good big sister in 35 years when we have another kid, amen? You know, like she cannot have to go through the same things that he went through. We want to raise kids who give freely to one another because they're secure in their parents' love, right? They know that they are loved because of just who they are and nothing can change that. The point is that we want to be a church that does the same thing. Right, Jesus said, the greatest among you shall be the servant of all, and he modeled that for us with his whole life. But the thing that empowered him to become the servant of all was that the story of his sonship was settled. His identity was secure. He knew that he was the beloved son with whom the father was well-pleased and that nothing on heaven, in heaven or on earth or in hell or anywhere in the cosmic galaxies or beyond the multiverse could change that fact about who he was. He knew that the same spirit that led him to the cross was the same spirit that rested the father's pleasure on him. And he said, I'm going to order my life and my steps according to that spirit. And then the story gets better for you and I, because we find out in John that it was the joy set before, or excuse me, in Hebrews, that it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross. And that joy was that you and I would get to experience that same pleasure and love and unity that he had with the father. That you and I would get to experience all the intimacy and pleasure and delight that the father has in the son through the spirit with the Trinity and with one another. That's what gave Jesus the power and the motivation to endure the cross. That's the thing that he died to create, a community that got to soak up all the love of heaven the same way that he got to soak up all the love. Why is this relevant, right? Why is it relevant that you and I are aware of our identities as sons and daughters in God? Because this, This it's the next slide, because all who are led by the Spirit are sons and daughters of God, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And instrumental to living out this communal call of giving up our lives for one another is being regularly reminded of our new identities, to have the issue settled in our hearts so that we can extend that identity to those who don't have it settled in their hearts right you and i get to share this unique call to extend the love of the father to those who don't have it so our spirit-guided self-giving acts of love amen and so today at the end we're going to worship and what i want the kind of call to action at the end of the sermon Is gonna be for you to pray for a fresh infilling of your identity in the Holy Spirit. For you to pray for God to reveal His self to you and His love to you and His delight in you in a new way. And we're gonna do that together. We're gonna have people pray for you and and speak truth over you and all the good stuff. But also tonight at 7 p.m., we're gonna be back in this building seeking our Father's face together as a family. And for this whole week, Every night we're going to be worshiping, seeking the Father's faith, delighting in Him and asking him to show us how much He delights in us, as we love on him and pray for one another and sing songs of Jesus. And I would encourage you this week, like Drew said, to buy that oil, uh, to, to make this your highest priority, to come together as a community, to experience the love as the children of God that He desired to pour out on you so much that he even gave his only son to do it. Amen like that he desired to pour out on you. He wanted us to experience and taste this goodness uh, so much that there was nothing that he withheld, not even his own life. Okay. And so that's the call today. Amen. How you guys doing? All right. All right. Let's look at verse six, one. We're in it. Brothers and sisters, family, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Right? So the first part of this is pretty clear. Paul's saying, if you catch somebody slipping, pick them up. Right? If you catch somebody falling, if you catch somebody slipping, just pick them up. On this journey to life, on this journey towards Jesus, on this journey to the cross, we're all gonna stumble and fall, and we need a little bit of help from our brothers and sisters. And in fact, if you've truly received the spirit, if you consider yourself a spiritual person, when somebody slips and falls, the last thing you do is like point it out or judge them or uh, make fun of them or distant, whatever it is, your obligation actually is to restore your brother and sister and to do it gently, to restore them to their rightful place as a son or daughter of God. Now, sometimes that might be a call to repentance, right? Because God's kids clean up their messes. Sometimes we have to correct our mistakes, and I'm calling you as my brother and sister to, hey, we got to fix this thing that we just broke. But other times, and, and very often, it just looks like holding that person while they're weeping and crying because of all the shame and accusation that they feel because they think their sin defines them. And so you and I get to be the people who affirm their identity in Christ, get to speak love and truth over them that silences the lies of the enemy as we restore them to who God called them to be, right? Either way, the end goal is that the one caught sinning is restored to personal wholeness and right standing within the community. That's our job when we restore one another. And I think that's such a countercultural idea, isn't it? Because we are trained to just cut and run the moment somebody's sin gets exposed, right? I need to distance myself from you immediately so that I don't catch any of the backlash of this. And more than that, I need to let everybody know how much I disagree with you, or I need to virtue signal because I need you to let you know I'm not like that. I'm way better than that, you know? I would never do such a thing. Hmm. One wrong move leads to permanent exclusion from community and perpetual dehumanization, and that often causes people to hide their sins even more. It has the exact opposite effect of what we need. We want people to live in the light, but when we force them and we're not a safe place for people to confess and repent and be broken, all they're going to go is deeper underground and just deeper into darkness instead of allowing the light that might burn sometimes, but to cleanse and heal their heart in love. And so you need to know that your ability to restore someone and to do it well can make all the difference in their walk with the Lord. I'm going to share a story, so cut the camera. Um, I experienced this, you know, when I was in college, Uh, I got saved between my freshman and sophomore year of college and had a radical encounter with the Lord. Uh, And I had this really sweet honeymoon phase with God and everything was just life and love and joy, but I also lost like everything. All my friends thought I was crazy. Uh, All my career goals and ambitions were laid aside. And so eventually the kind of reality of the cross, and the living the crucified life uh, set in and I was, I was really struggling. I was in a rough season. Uh, and during that season, I, I almost got together with one of my non-Christian classmates, this, this girl in one of my classes. Um, and we were in her dorm and things were progressing. We were kissing and she stops and looks me dead in the eyes and says, wait, aren't you a Christian? <laughs> I was just like, "Yep." You know I was like obliterated. I mean, I have never felt that exposed in my entire life like I was like i 'm a fraud i've let her away i'm probably going to go to hell, you know, like I was so sad and broken, and I felt so much shame and and pain, and so I left and i 'm literally walking the streets of New York City, just weeping, bawling my eyes out. I was such a sweet, gentle little bit, you know what i mean like I was such 'm so good hearted uh, and I'm just crying, crying, crying and uh, and people probably thought I was insane, and then I felt led in my spirit to call one of my friends, like my, my brother, the guy who actually led me to the Lord. And he just so happened to be with like five or six of our closest girlfriends who were Christians. And then I started crying even more because like they're so pure and holy. And I'm like, you know, I'm so broken. But what I did, I confessed my sin and then these sisters, these women of God just began to speak life and truth and identity over me in a way that was so beautiful and loving and sweet and kind. And in my lowest moment, they reminded me of who I am because of who Christ is and that this thing didn't have to be the end of my story. Right? That didn't change the the sin, but it changed who I was by hearing that love and that identity spoken over me. I'm so grateful. It changed my life. Uh, And so then I later uh, wrote the young lady a letter repenting, and she never talked to me again. She (laughs) she probably thought, like, you're so weird. Uh, but, But, you know, the point is the church is this miraculous place where true forgiveness, just like true repentance, is possible because our righteousness does not depend on our ability to perform, and our acceptance does not depend on our ability to keep up appearances right? This family is supposed to be the safe place for broken people. We're all being made new, but we're broken nonetheless. And so when someone in our community confesses or is caught, our goal and desire is to participate in God's reconciling work of restoring them to their child of godness by reminding them of the work of the cross and our common humanity and the glorious future toward which we are headed if we carry on in this cross-shaped life. Amen. So restore one another gently and don't act like you can't be tempted or that you're better than someone because you don't struggle with what they struggle with or that you're, I'm simply weak or someone else is weak because or not as holy as you because of what they go through. We all have our stuff and our issues and we don't even know it often unless we're living in close enough relationship with somebody for it to be exposed. Right? None of us can become who God's calling us to be apart from his family. And so, Obviously, this leads to a host of other questions. Uh, For example, what do I do if someone sins against me and refuses to repent? Someone in my community group, right? Or what do I do if someone is just living in a sin and they're refusing to, it's not hurting me, but it's, uh, you know, they're not repentant of it and they don't care and they're trying to keep it a secret and they're lying. What about abusive situations? These are really real concerns. And so I just want to clarify on behalf of the, the leadership team here that sins of harm or abuse need to be shared with elders immediately, at Park Hill, we're in a season of renewing our commitment to one another. We're revamping the basics class, and we're going to talk about Matthew 18 and church discipline and all this kind of stuff. But for now, if you feel like you're in an abusive relationship or unhealthy situation, know that all Park Hill elders are trained to be trusted, safe, protective spiritual fathers and mothers. And there's 100% confidentiality within the elder team for all stories of harm and abuse to find healing and safety and correction where needed. Amen. All right. Verse two. I think those were the long parts. So we're going to get shorter as we go. Okay. Uh, verse two, bear one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Hmm. Bear one another's burdens. And in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. All right? This idea of bear one another's burdens, carrying somebody's stuff. It was literally the work of slaves uh, in Roman society right? If it was a slave was available, they were the pack mule. They were carrying everybody's stuff. And so Paul here is echoing 5.13, where he said that uh, we must become like slaves to one another through love. And part of that looks like uh, bearing one another's burdens. Uh, and that's a pretty big deal in a culture where freedom is the highest value, right? And we're not being dependent on somebody else and not needing anything from anybody else, being self-sufficient uh, and kind of judging other people when they're not self-sufficient. That's our culture, And so the idea of, wait, I I need somebody to help me carry stuff, but I also need to become a slave to other people and serve them when they have stuff to carry. That's kind of mind-blowing. In the immediate context, he's talking about kind of restoring people in their moral and spiritual failings, right? Like carrying the heavy stuff for people. But it also means that we meet each other's needs practically like the church did in Acts 2 and 4, Right? This is the kind of love that is tangible. This is the kind of love that pays other people's bills, right? Not other people out there, it's good, but like one another's bills. This is the kind of love that helps people move into their house on a rainy day because they don't have anybody to move them. or to. This is the kind of love that that meets where the rubber meets the road. It's a physical, tangible, practical kind of love. See, if there's a need in your community group, you need to go out of your way to meet it to demonstrate God's provision and joy and love and care and delight in that person, to let them know that they're not alone, that being a part of this family means that they are secure. We no longer get to be self-centered and conceited here. The goal of the spirit-led community is that each member would experience the father's love through the other. And in this family, just like Jesus taught, those with influence, wealth, and power are told to use it to bless others who lack. Now we did a great job of this through the pandemic uh, with our mutual funds and supporting people who had needs during COVID. Like I was watching online from Michigan during that time and I was like, wow, this church is awesome, you know? And we give a lot of money to justice projects and we should celebrate that. But, But the question is personal today. Are you the kind of person who willingly, even joyfully comes out of your pocket to meet the needs of other people? Do you even know the needs of those people in your community group or that you're walking with? Are you a safe place for them to come if they have a need? Just as Jesus laid down all the riches of heaven to serve us, to become a slave, so we ought to lay down our lives for one another, right? It's not an option, it's an obligation. If we're following Jesus, this is what it looks like. This is what it means to fulfill the law of Christ by living like he lived, And in this way, we follow the Spirit. Good? Verses 3 through 5. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Okay. Uh, what's happening? Am I supposed to carry somebody else's burdens or bury my own, you know? Not bury, bear my own, you know? Uh, the answer is both. Earlier, Paul said, don't act like you can't be tempted. And now he's basically saying, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, right? Instead of judging someone else for what they're struggling with or what their needs are, why don't you just focus on the work that matters, which is literally how well you're making yourself a slave to other people, right? Why don't you just focus on that, uh, How well are you pouring out costly love on the other people in your life in this family in a way that blesses and restores them as it strengthens the family overall, right? And furthermore, don't be conceited. Be sure to keep pulling up the weeds in your own garden to make sure that the fruit in your life looks the way that it needs to look, right? Because a garden takes time to grow. Uh, But I have a yard now. We bought a house and weeds, they just sprout up overnight, And so in this journey of uh, growing together into the family that God is creating, the community that mirrors and images the love that is God, make sure that you don't slip up and stop tending to your own sins and and things like that as well because you're so focused on what somebody else is doing. When it comes to my neighbor, as N.T. Wright puts it, I must remember to remain humble when I offer help. But when it comes to myself, I must recognize my own responsibility for my actions, All right? And so pride in and of itself is not necessarily wrong, but he's saying, if you're going to have pride in anything, let it be how quickly you repent, how dependent you are on the spirit, how much you outdo one another in honor, as Paul says in Romans, how little you compete or envy. Like those are the things that we should be focusing on, not what someone else is going through. When we do look at someone else, it needs to be with a loving eye of how can I help? How can I serve them? How can I be like Jesus to them? How can I pour out the Father's love? How can I point them more to the Spirit? Amen? Amen. Verse six. Since then you were led by the Spirit. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word, the one who is taught the word, should share all good things with their teacher. The one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Now, this is perhaps the simplest, most straightforward of Paul's kind of commands here of communal life. Um, but we don't like it because Paul goes after our money. Basically, he's just saying, uh, give of yourselves materially to those who give you the word, Right. To those who sow into you like soil in which they want to see God's life grow, let them reap from what they planted." whether it's your time, your money, your resources, your energy, even honor, Peter talks about giving it to the teacher, serve them materially because they are serving you eternally with their very lives. More than that, one day, Evan and Aaliyah and the elders, uh, they're going to have to give an account to God for you, for how well that they just did all this love stuff that I've been talking about, how they lived it out for you. That's what they're going to have to answer to God for. And so I know this can be weird if you grew up in a church where uh, uh, there was like a 10-minute money sermon every Sunday before the regular sermon. Like I grew up in that kind of church, you know? And it gets kind of weird where are like, it makes me uncomfortable, but, but that's not what Paul's talking about here. He's simply saying, uh, love on those who are giving you God's word, those who feed you, right? Uh, because the way that they've chosen to eat is by feeding you. And so we need to mutuality, mutually, reciprocally do our part as well one of the clearest ways that we can crucify our flesh is by investing sacrificially into God's mission rather than in the excess of our materialistic culture, right? We don't just do this only so that the family can eat, which is very important, but we do it so that the eternal love that I've been talking about can be offered to those who have not tasted or seen it yet. Amen? And that brings me to my last point. When you sow love, you reap love, Period. Uh, I wrote a song with my friend recently and it's called Eternity. Um, and the first lyric goes, goes, nothing lasts forever but love. It has the final word. I can rap. And uh, <laughs> it, was, it was one of those lyrics that came immediately uh, for me, but, but because it's true, isn't it? The only thing that lasts forever is love. But it's a special kind of love. It's this kind of love that we've been talking about. It's a self-giving, burden-bearing, flesh-crucifying, cross-carrying, long-suffering, identity-settling love that leads us into self-denial and self-sacrifice for the good of the other because it is a spirit-led love that follows Jesus straight into the heart of the Father. You know, when I got saved, uh, largely it's because I had this radical encounter, which I can get into one day but then I just spent like a summer reading the Bible and I was reading through acts and the gospels. And I said, wow, like I've never experienced a community like this acts 2 This is what church is supposed to look like. No wonder I kind of never felt at home in some of these churches that I've been a part of. And maybe some of you can uh, relate to that, but the the truth is that so many of us want an acts two community without being willing to pull it into reality with our own bodies and actions. Right. Uh, We want to live that and we want to see that happen without being willing to make the sacrifices personally to make it real, to make it on earth as it is in heaven. See, we need to remember that this kind of community, this new family that Paul is preaching is a miracle bought with the blood of Christ. And as we grow, it will not be perfect. It will be imperfect and messy and difficult and painful, but the end is more beautiful than we know. It's like the garden that you tend over and over again, pulling up the weeds, watering it daily, uh, rearranging it and teasing this thing out just so that it looks in the end the way that it should. This is the kingdom. And it only comes through our continued faithfulness as we put our trust in the faithfulness of Jesus. But it will come. And whatever tries to stop it will perish. In Paul's words, As we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. See, when you sow love, you reap love, period. And every act of faith working itself out through love will be met one day with a well done Every gift of self-given will shape you more into the image of Jesus, who is the only one to whom eternal life belongs. And we will reap a harvest of righteousness, and we will reap a harvest of souls coming to know their creator. But it will also shape us into the community that he died to give life. Right? When we do well, when we do good to one another, when we sow freely and give love to one another, we will become and help one another become the community that he died to create. Therefore, let us give this love to everybody, but especially those in this room who call upon our Father in faith. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, you are welcome in this place. You're present in this place. Not just through the preached word, not just through the worship, not just through the communion, but through the love that we share with one another. Thank you that you died so that we might live. Thank you that you gave yourself freely so that we might know that we are beloved sons and daughters and in turn give ourselves freely so that others might know that they are beloved sons and daughters. And thank you that it is this family that will witness to the world who you are, how good you are, how real you are, how huge you are, how amazing your love is for those who are far away and for those who are near. As we worship and prepare to take communion, God, I pray that you would just uh, fill us fresh, fresh, fresh wind, fresh fire with the Holy Spirit. If there's anybody whose identity Is unsettled, I pray, Lord, that you would speak in a way that they understand your truth and love and intimacy over their life. Your delight and pleasure that you have in each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to ask people to, oh, amen. We're going to have some people over here to pray for you. So if you need prayer for anything, but especially for your identity to be affirmed and settled today, um, just come up and get prayer. All right, we love you.